From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Education Specialist Patty Scalzo, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back often for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common chronic liver disease and affects an estimated 25% of the adult population in the United States. About one quarter of patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. Nurse practitioners are key providers for this population and need to stay abreast of best practices for screening, diagnosis, and treatment of these conditions. On today's podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioners Kelly Kassler and Amanda Cheney to introduce you to the new nomenclature and discuss case studies of commonly encountered issues in the management of patients with steatotic liver disease. Dr. Kelly Kassler is an associate clinical professor at the Ohio State University College of Nursing, where she teaches in the Family Nurse Practitioner and Doctor of Nursing Practice programs. Her DNP project focus was on a toolkit to support primary care providers in delivering evidence-based practice for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and she is currently expanding on that work by serving a two-year term as the only nurse practitioner commissioner for the liver disease in primary care commission for the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Dr. Amanda Cheney is a nurse practitioner and senior director of advanced practice provider services at Cleveland Clinic in Florida, staffing over 430 nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Prior to this role, Dr. Cheney served at Mayo Clinic for over 20 years in a variety of roles in leadership, patient care, and academic faculty. She was inducted as a fellow with the American Association of Nurse Practitioners in 2017, State Award of Excellence for AANP in 2018, and Associate Fellow of the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease in 2020. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts, Dr. Kasler and Dr. Cheney. Thank you so much for having us today as guests on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I know Amanda's really excited to be here. And we're excited to kind of discuss the primary care and specialty care perspective on Mazzled with everyone. I'm going to be talking more from the primary care side of things, and Amanda's going to be talking from the specialty care side of things. My name's Kelly Kassler, and I'm faculty at The Ohio State University College of Nursing, and I also work one day a week in a federally qualified health clinic as a family nurse practitioner. I'm Amanda Cheney. I'm Senior Director of APPs at Cleveland Clinic in Florida, and really happy to be here today with Kelly. 
And Amanda, you work in the hepatology space, right? I do. I've been a nurse practitioner with liver transplant for 23 years. I worked at Mayo Clinic prior to coming over to Cleveland Clinic. My background is that I worked in strictly the hospital setting for many, many years, and then now I'm broaching the outpatient setting and so see clinic patients in the hepatology space. It's been really great to collaborate with you. I know I always have questions in primary care for my hepatology colleagues. So that's what we're hoping to bring to everyone in the audience today. We thought that we would start just by doing a brief introduction of the new nomenclature. Everyone out there probably is familiar or used to calling Mazzled really as NAFLD or NASH. We used to call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which was NAFLD and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH. Those were the terms we were using up until about a month or so ago. But now we have really changed or really started to focus changing our nomenclature into metabolic-associated steatototic liver disease. And so we, for short, we call that mazzled. And there were some reasons to change this nomenclature. A lot of it had to do with bias that they thought was in the name of fatty liver disease and that that might be stigmatizing to some individuals and keep some people from seeking care and miss some people from being involved in clinical trials. The other nice thing about the change in the nomenclature is they're using the nomenclature as a more global term and they've added a new category for a problem that was there, but we didn't really have a good diagnostic term for. And that new term or new category is called MET-ALD. So metabolic alcohol-associated liver disease, MET-ALD. So that's the patient that has both what we previously called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but also is overusing alcohol and probably has a combination of both metabolic dysfunction and alcohol overuse as the reason for the steatosis in their liver. So when you look at the new nomenclature that came out from this global group of experts, global primary care and specialty care experts from around the world, you really see that they start with this overarching umbrella term of steatotic liver disease. And there are many things that can cause steatotic liver disease. That can be from alcohol overuse. It can be from metabolic dysfunction. It can be from autoimmune problems. It can be from drug-induced liver injury from medications or supplements. And so it's nice to have that a little bit clearer with this new nomenclature where there's this umbrella term of steatotic liver disease. And then under that term, which is kind of our jobs when we're identifying people that have steatosis in their livers, is we have to decide, okay, what's the etiology of that steatotic liver disease? And so it can be metabolic dysfunction-associated steatotic liver disease, which is mazzled. It can be alcohol liver disease, 
which is from alcohol overuse, and we would just call that ALD. And then it can be a combination of the two, alcohol and metabolic dysfunction, and that would be MET-ALD. Then there's the other category that we have of the steatotic liver disease, which is drug-induced liver injury causing the steatosis, and that can be things like prescription medications are also herbal supplements, over-the-counter medications. And you have several things that can cause steatotic liver disease. And of course, what we're talking about today is we are focusing in on the metabolic dysfunction-associated steatotic liver disease. So that's the mazzle. And when the steatosis with the metabolic dysfunction goes on to cause inflammation and injury and fibrosis in the liver, then we get into what we call metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis. So that's MASH. And that was previously known as NASH. That's a little bit easier to remember as the nomenclature change because we just went from NASH to MASH. And it's really those patients with MASH, the hepatitis, which is the inflammation, the fibrosis, that we really want to identify and pick up on in primary care so we can get them to specialty if they need it. So a lot of what Amanda and I have spent the last couple months doing has been really working on some resources that everyone can use to help you understand the change in the nomenclature, the new definitions, and also the key definitions for metabolic dysfunction and how you would know if your patient meets definition for metabolic dysfunction. And you can find that all in the free CE activity in the AANPCE Center that's called What's New with NASH? We thought it would be helpful to now move into a couple case studies that Amanda and I came up with to help you better understand a lot of this new nomenclature and also the definitions of metabolic dysfunction-associated liver disease and how to pick up on patients that we need to get into hepatology. Yeah, so we're going to start with our first case. It is a 50-year-old female patient with dyslipidemia. She is treated with a moderate-intensity statin. She has obesity, and she has some incidental findings of mildly elevated liver enzyme levels. In my own practice, this is a pretty common scenario and someone that would be referred to me for abnormal LFTs. Her lab work also shows a mild elevation of TSH levels, but a normal free thyroxine and T3, T4 levels. And so this would signify a subclinical hypothyroidism diagnosis. We go ahead and do our due diligence and do a FIB4 score, and it is 2.13, and that reveals that she has an indeterminate risk of fibrosis. Now, I've mentioned a few things here that if you've listened to our education on the CE Center, then you would automatically kind of start thinking about these things. But there's actually five cardiometabolic risk factors that are associated with mazzled. And so I just want to highlight them for us so that we all kind of are on the same page. The first is BMI. So that would be a BMI of greater than 25 or a waist circumference of greater than 94 centimeters for males or 80 centimeters for females. 
The second one is a fasting blood glucose greater than 100 or a patient who has known diabetes. So definitely diabetes is front and center when we're talking about metabolic disease. The third one is blood pressure elevation or someone who is on antihypertensive treatment. The fourth one is triglycerides greater than 150 or they already are on a statin. So that should kind of bring a ding in your mind when we mention that in our case study. And then an HDL of less than 40 in males or less than 50 in females, or they are on a lipid lowering agent. So already we can see from this case study, we have at least two, if not three, of these cardiometabolic risk factors. So we have the BMI, so the obesity, we have the triglycerides are on a lipid lowering agent. So that checks two of the boxes. And then we would want to know about the hypertension or the blood sugar. When we calculate the FIB4 test, so that is a fibrosis 4 index. It's called FIB4 for short. And what it does is even in patients who have normal liver function tests, we can calculate this score based on age, the ALT and AST levels, and their platelet count. You can find the formula on medcalc.com. And you just plug in these numbers, what the labs are, what the patient's age is, and it'll pop out a score for you. So a patient who's low risk is less than 1.3. And really for that patient, we're just going to repeat testing in two to three years and just watch and monitor, watch and wait. For the patient who is 1.3 to 2.67, those patients are at indeterminate risk. So we would want to think about ordering a liver stiffness measurement or LSM for short, or do an enhanced fibrosis test. For patients who are at high risk, so that's at a FIB4 score of greater than 2.67, that will give you clear guidance to go ahead and refer to a hepatologist for further workup to see what's going on for this patient. So for this patient in our case study, they had a FIN4 score of 2.13, and so they're at that indeterminate risk for fibrosis. May have fibrosis, may not, may be at higher risk for developing that. But we definitely know that there is certain cardiometabolic risk factors that we can work on to prevent further damage to the liver, and that's what we want to focus on. So when we think about Mazzled, there is this diabetes component. There is this insulin resistance component. And so we want to think about with this patient, how we rule that out? Is there a risk or does this patient have undiagnosed diabetes? And so that's something that we would want to talk about. When they were pregnant, did they have any, any issues with gestational diabetes? Do they have any family history of liver disease or autoimmune disease? So all of these questions would kind of be front in your mind when you're working up this patient further. So Kelly, with this patient and from primary care perspective, what are some of the next steps that you would do for this patient? Yeah, so that really can depend a lot on if in primary care I have access to liver stiffness measurement. You know, you're starting to see this be more available in primary care, but I also have worked in primary care settings where gastroenterologist and hepatologist are the only one that had access to the liver stiffness measurements. In an ideal world, if I had access to liver stiffness measurement, and that might be through the radiology department that I work with, some primary care offices are starting to have this in the primary care setting too. But ideally, I would go on and 
obtain a liver stiffness measurement. It is really a pretty simple reading. It's a modification of an ultrasound probe that's put between the rib spaces on the right side in the area of the liver, and the sound waves pass through to give you an estimate of how stiff the liver is. It's pretty easy to conduct. I've done it. Regardless, you just need to find out where that patient could get a liver stiffness measurement done. And we would see what those results are. And there are scores that are low risk, indeterminate, and high risk. And so for the patients that are indeterminate or high risk on the liver stiffness measurement, those patients would need to be referred on to hepatology to be evaluated for fibrosis. What the indeterminate and high-risk readings are telling us with the liver stiffness measurement is that this patient could have advanced fibrosis and therefore needs a higher level of care, needs to see hepatology. Now, of course, if I didn't have a way that I could get liver stiffness measurements without referring to gastroenterology or hepatology, I would go ahead and refer right then and there. But if I had access to it and I got low risk, I could be reasonably confident in managing that patient in primary care, rechecking them with both a FIB4 and probably liver stiffness measurement in another year, recalculating everything and reassessing. Yeah, I think that's really important. When the patient is at low risk or when there's not really those cardiometabolic risk factors in place, but they have those elevated LFTs, that it's okay to watch and wait. It doesn't automatically have to trigger that hepatologist referral. We do want to make sure that we're referring the appropriate patients so that, again, with the access issues that we have in every specialty, that we're making sure the right patients are, are going for those needed evaluations. One other thing that I like to do is to do a very, very thorough medication reconciliation. I find that patients will tend to grab things over the counter, go to the health food store, add different supplements, but then they don't let you know that when you are talking to them in the clinic. So I do a very, very thorough ask of what medications are taking. So not only prescription, but again, over-the-counter any herbal supplements, anything from the health food store, and I write it all down. I've had some patients who will say, well, the doctor told me years ago I had fatty liver disease, so I bought this, quote, liver detox medication from a health food store. And I don't know what's in that. I have, <laughs> have no idea what kind of medication or supplement that is. And so I want to make sure that there are no additional substances or any sort of triggers that could be impacting the liver in any way. So doing that through medication reconciliation is really, really important. The other thing is looking at the initial interventions to prevent any progression of liver disease. So when I think about that, I automatically think about vaccination. So have they already been vaccinated against hepatitis A and hepatitis B? Those are viruses that are very traumatic and injury-provoking to the liver. And so if they don't have immunity to that already, that would be devastating to have that sort of infection on top of what they already have going on. So I would want to make sure that if they have never been immunized against that or they have no idea, 
then we check those antibody levels and we proceed with those vaccinations if appropriate. The other things are thinking about lifestyle modification. So again, we always talk about diet and exercise. Sometimes patients look at us like deer in the headlights. They just look at us like, okay, that's great, but how? And so really breaking it down step by step, piece by piece for them to say, maybe change one meal a day, one part of your meal a day. Aim for more protein in your diet on a regular basis. Choose more vegetables instead of a large steak, maybe half that size of a steak and more vegetables instead if you still are hungry. So really practical approaches to how to make those lifestyle modifications. We tell patients aim for 30 minutes of aerobic activity every day. And again, they look at this like, okay, great, how? And so really telling them if they're not at a point where 30 minutes is doable, what can they do? And what modifications do we need to assist them to make to get to that maybe in six months or a year. So slow and steady, I always tell them wins the race. And we really want to look at their circumstances currently and help them with those modifications over time because this is a lifestyle change. It's going to be permanent. We want them to make the most of their life and put these modifications in place so that they do have a long, healthy life. I think it's really important for patients to understand that this isn't a pill that's going to cure everything. It's not anything that's going to be fixed overnight, but it is a a marathon and it's something that you're going to partner with them for the long haul. One of the other things is avoiding alcohol. So if there's already injury in the liver, I always tell my patients, you don't want to add more insult to injury. You don't want to add any more substances to their body that is going to make that liver work harder. So I tell them to avoid all alcohol consumption and even non-alcoholic beer has alcohol in it. So don't do it. (laughs) Some patients are kind of surprised to hear that. One of the other things that I think has been really interesting that's come out in the literature recently is this implication of subclinical hypothyroidism. Again, that's like a metabolic piece of what's going on in their bodies. And this is called metabolic liver disease, right? So there is a clinical correlation with having hypothyroidism and the development of NAFLD or MAFLD, as we now are calling it, and MASH. So I think that's really important for us to understand and and be aware of as well. Kelly, what do you think about adjusting statin doses? So are you regularly, when you have a patient with MASLD, are you looking at their cholesterol levels? And if they are on a statin, adjusting that dose up, even if they have elevated LFTs, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, great question. You know, that's a question that comes up a lot, especially when I'm working with students in clinic. And I think it's a common misconception that if a patient has elevated liver transaminases, that we have to take them off their statin or reduce the dose. And the evidence really tells us that we do not have to do that, that it's safe for them to be on statins. And because of the metabolic risk that they have or the cardiovascular risk, it's actually protective and recommended that they stay on the medicine because it'll help protect them from cardiovascular disease. So that's something that I think is a big misconception out there. I agree. I think it's really important for all of us to be aware that even if there are some elevations. It might be okay to stop the statin for a little while, see if the LFTs come down, see if that's even related to what's going on. But to take them off permanently because they have fibrosis or because they have a degree of liver injury, 
we really shouldn't do that because, again, it's a metabolic piece and we want to make sure that the metabolic piece is being treated. Right. It's so important. So I have a question for you. How do you think the management would change of this patient if they didn't have any elevations in their liver enzymes? Do you think that would really change anything that we did for this patient? Well, as far as treating the mazel, no. I think we would still focus on modification of the lifestyle changes we talked about and really optimizing those metabolic risk factors to make sure that those are under control to help the liver recover. But one thing that comes to mind is ruling out other causes of liver disease and liver issues. So when the liver enzymes are elevated, yes, it could just be an issue with fatty liver disease, quote unquote, but it also could be issues with autoimmune disease. I I actually have had a few patients that have both a component of fatty liver disease and autoimmune disease. And so ruling out those other causes of why that fat could be in the liver cells is really important. And so a very thorough workup is typically my pathway of what I do when once I get to my office. And luckily, sometimes we have really good primary care providers and they go ahead and do some of those labs ahead of time. So I actually many times will have those labs already ready for me to review and then am able to sort through it and add additional testing if I need to. Yeah, that's a great point. Just because there's elevated liver enzymes does not automatically mean that it's metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease. We, we still have some work to do. But the one thing that I think about when there's no liver enzyme elevations is you also just can't breathe easy. If your patient has high metabolic risk, we do know from the research that even if the liver enzymes are in normal ranges, they may still have steatosis in their liver and steatohepatitis. So you can still calculate that FIB4 to see if the patient's at risk, even if they have normal liver enzyme levels. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing when we think about this particular patient, sometimes I will get this type of scenario and they'll refer to me for the liver biopsy. I don't normally just go ahead and jump to a liver biopsy. There is additional testing that I will do to rule out other causes of disease. So talking about infections, talking about autoimmune disease and those other pieces, if those labs come back and reflect me toward that path, then I would need a liver biopsy to confirm or negate the autoimmune hepatitis diagnosis. So I don't necessarily order liver biopsies all the time. If I think of a percent of of patients with fatty liver diagnosis that comes to me that I do that for, it's probably less than 10%. Liver biopsy comes with its risk. There's a risk of infection. There's a risk of bleeding. There's a risk of puncture. It is an an invasive procedure. So we really want to make sure the benefit outweighs the risk before we make that decision. And again, I, I, I really order only a handful of them in this sort of circumstance. So yes, it is the gold standard to confirm a diagnosis of liver disease, but there's many other ways now to to manage and to figure out that decision tree rather than jumping to a liver biopsy. So what do you think about these lifestyle modifications from a primary care perspective? There's obviously a lot that can be done in the primary care space and 
sometimes I'm a little bit envious of our primary care because then they can follow up with these patients a little bit more closely and really kind of help them with the weight management and the lifestyle changes that we want them to have in place. And with me, they might see me in six months or a year. So do you have any tricks of the trade that you've used to really help these patients along? Yeah, that's a great question. Hopefully over time in primary care, you've built that trust with the patient and you've gotten to know them. But I really do like to do a good social determinants of health screen on them to see if they have access to healthy food or do they live in a food desert? Also, do they have access or a safe place where they can exercise? So taking that into account before I really start diving deep into the modifications is important for me. I I really do tend to encourage the Mediterranean diet because that's been shown in the research to be very helpful for preventing progression of mazzled. And also the Harvard Healthy Food Plate method can be helpful as it teaches patients how to fill up their dinner plate with healthier choices of food rather than just a bunch of potatoes and meat, adding some vegetables in there and fresh fruits. I also want to assess my patient's understanding of what's going on to see if they understand the disease process. Mazel is a pretty complex pathophysiology, even for us to understand as nurse practitioners. So I really think that until patients fully understand what's going on in their bodies, it's really hard to get them to make those lifestyle changes. And especially coming off the COVID pandemic, and, and we all know that stressors are high for our patients, I really like to screen for alcohol use because if patients screen positive for excessive alcohol use, we're going to really have to add the extra components of cognitive behavioral therapy and partner with our health counselors and our psychologists to help them better manage their stress and, and decrease those risky use behaviors of alcohol and maybe set them up with some support groups to help with their stress management. Yeah, I think those are really good tools. I also think our patients many times don't understand that it can be pretty severe. I think they really get the impression that it's not that big of a deal. It's just quote-unquote fatty liver disease. And I think it's really important that we correct that misinterpretation and we let them know, yes, this can be very serious and it can progress and you could even need a liver transplant because you've gotten to a point where this is no longer reversible. It's crazy to think about. I mean, we talk about this sort of diagnosis and and we've done a lot of work in the past few months on this topic, but many patients do believe that it's a benign disease and and it is not. And so I think our jobs as nurse practitioners is really to correct that misinterpretation and make sure our patients are well-educated about this disease. So we have another case, Kelly. Do you want to introduce case two for us? So this other case that we wanted to talk about was the 62-year-old male patient who has dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, obesity. His BMI is 37 kilograms per meter squared. The patient also has hypertension and stage two chronic kidney disease. 
And this is all too common in primary care, but we're going to say that the patient is presenting to your practice in primary care to establish care and has this list of things that you're going to take on managing. And so they are on a high-intensity statin, and they're on metformin as well. They have also been taking a sulfonylurea and an ACE inhibitor. Their blood pressure is at goal. It's in the normal ranges. But their A1C that you did is 9.2%. The rest of the laboratory follow-up all came back in the normal ranges. When we go to do a FIB4 for this patient, we're finding that they are scoring in the high-risk level of fibrosis. And last year, you got the records from their prior provider, and last year they were scoring in the indeterminate range. They were sent on for liver stiffness measurement, and that came back as low risk. So they just continued to be managed in primary care. So we know that this patient has some component of metabolic dysfunction, associated steatotonic liver disease, but it was low risk. So we've been managing that in primary care. But we do that FIB4 today, and it's showing a high risk for advanced fibrosis. We've got to talk about what are going to be some of the initial things that we do for this patient. And there are a lot of options that we have, but one of the main things that we probably want to focus on is the antihyperglycemia regimen, the regimen for type 2 diabetes. And one of the first things that comes to mind for me is the early research that's coming out with Mazold is showing the GLP-1 receptor agonists are starting to show some benefit in Mazold. So one of the first things I think about doing is talking to this patient about keeping them on their metformin. I definitely would like to do that and make sure that they are able to take it seven days out of the week. They're taking it and not having side effects or problems affording it that are keeping them from being able to take it. And then I'd like to talk to them about taking away that sulfonylurea and adding something like semaglutide or liraglutide because that's going to help with their diabetes, but it's also going to help with their weight loss. It is going to help them also with reducing food cravings and eating a little bit healthier. There's data that the GLP-1 RAs help with with that as well. So I think that would be a really good option for this patient. I don't know if I would make any adjustments to other medications right now. I'd probably start there. I would point out for the group that you don't have to wait three months to bring that patient back to see what their A1C is. You can make that change of adding the GLP-1-RA and then bring them back in a month with their whole blood glucose readings and see if those are any better than previous readings and see how they're doing with weight loss and lifestyle changes. Because we don't want to lose the opportunity to get on top of the diabetes. Sometimes if we wait three months, we're missing some opportunities to help them modify some of their lifestyle interventions or to pick up on that side effect that might 
make them go off the medicines without talking to us. The other thing I think about is, has this patient ever seen a diabetes educator or been to an educator support group? Um, Those are things that come to mind. But Amanda, I did want to ask you, with that FIB4 score now being in the high risk level for fibrosis, what do you think our next step should be in terms of addressing that? Yeah, so this is an interesting case. I, I want to kind of break this down for our audience because it's really important, I think, to recognize those five meta- cardiometabolic risk factors. And for this patient, he's hitting all five of them. So we have the diabetes, we have obesity, a BMI greater than 35, so he's 37. He has hypertension. He's on medication for that. And he's on medication with a statin. So we have hit all five <laughs> cardiometabolic risk factors. So this poor guy worries me a little bit. Now, we know that he's progressed from last year. He was indeterminate with his risk for fibrosis, and now he's at high risk. And so we, obviously, we have it. He hasn't. Nobody's done a good job with managing these cardiometabolic risk factors and reducing his risk. His risk has been high, and he has caused more injury to his liver, frankly, because of these issues probably not being managed ideally. We know his hemoglobin A1C is 9.2. We want to get that less than six. So we have some things for sure to work on with him. When I think about the next steps for him, I do want to make sure that he has that diabetic education that you have nicely outlined. We want to get that diabetes under better control. So maybe additional changes and modifications of his antihyperglycemic agents to make sure that that is under better control. But then again, talking through the lifestyle modifications is going to be huge here. So again, focusing on the Mediterranean diet, focusing on that aerobic activity, understanding what his maybe physical limitations are and how we can partner with him so that he can start doing some more activity to progress to that 30 minutes a day of aerobic activity. And I think it is really important for the primary care and the hepatology team to be in a partnership for this patient. This is not going to be something that's, again, a quick fix or something that's going to be fixed with one pill and that's it. We do not have any FDA medications that are approved for treatment of fatty liver disease. And so it is really important that we manage these cardiometabolic risk factors and that we get those under control so that then the liver can try to heal itself. Now, one thing that I would like to point out is that we don't know how advanced his liver disease is. Once we have changed from the state of fibrosis into cirrhosis, that's what I call the point of no return, where a patient can no longer repair the liver. The liver is the only organ that can regenerate and improve the cells. No other organ can do that. But once they get to that state of cirrhosis, The liver can't do that anymore. There's been so much damage over so much time that that can't happen anymore. And so at that point, the only cure is a liver transplant. So the idea with fatty liver disease and basalt is to never get to that stage of cirrhosis. We want to do everything we can to get into, stay in that fibrosis timeline or, or stage and then help the liver improve itself and go back to earlier stages of fibrosis, which is possible if we remove the offending agents. So one thing that I think is really important 
for us to think through is, is how we do that as, as a partnership between our primary care offices and hepatology. And I think regular communication on the patient to discuss different pieces of that management is really important. So for this particular case, we had the patient start on a GLP-1 and the sulfonylurea was discontinued. The metformin was continued. The follow-up we scheduled with primary care for four weeks to monitor the progress of the glycemic targets because we definitely want to get him lower than that nine hemoglobin A1C that he was at before. He's also referred to hepatology clinic for additional evaluation. A liver biopsy was ordered and completed and reveals hepatic steatosis, inflammation, hepatocyte ballooning with parasinusoidal and portal fibrosis, so at a stage two fibrosis. So luckily, we are not to that stage where the patient has developed cirrhosis, so we're still in that early stage of fibrosis. So there's hope here that we can improve this liver and make sure that he does not progress to that stage where he does need a transplant. So that would be the ideal situation. Now, just a note about liver biopsies. It is important to have the right person read that pathology report in the slides. We have, obviously, general pathologists who just read everything under the sun, and there are specific hepatology-trained pathologists that are very, very specialized in reading these liver slides. So my recommendation is if you have that ability to get that read by a hepatology-trained liver pathologist, that would be preferable. If you don't, then, then there's other ways to go about that. The slides can be sent to a center who does that. Even in a rural community, we could always send that to a center that does that to get the information that you need. We live in a world nowadays that has a lot of amazing technology and partnerships. And so there is hope even if you live in a rural area. So one thing I just want to emphasize is the optimization of the patient. Again, making sure that the vaccinations have been completed. We don't want to add more insult to injury. Don't want to add another infection on top of what they already have going on that could make that liver further injured. So making sure they have hepatitis A and B vaccinations on board or that they have immunity to that. Making sure that all alcohol consumption has ceased coaching them through that, helping them understand why, and helping them understand that this is not a benign condition. This is something that can get fairly severe, and we don't want them to go through that. We want to help them through this as, as much as we can. Kelly, what else would you add? I think you summed it up really nicely. I, I think, you know, pointing out for the listeners, too, that it's really important to communicate with the specialist that so often we're just doing our own thing and not talking or calling up when there's questions. And this is something I have tried to be better about, especially if I'm noticing that the patient is not really following the ideal trajectory. So, you know, they may only be seeing hepatology once a year, but they're going to be seeing me more frequently. So if there's something that just seems a little off, it's nice to be able to just call the people in the hepatology clinic and run things by them to make sure that we're not missing anything and this patient's getting all that they need. From the specialist standpoint, do you have any more thoughts on that, Amanda? The, the only other thing that comes to mind is when I worked at Mayo Clinic and I was in liver transplant there, 
and patients were transplanted for fatty liver disease. There were a handful of patients that we also did a bariatric surgery at the time of their liver transplant. And the whole purpose of that was to help that metabolic component so that the new liver didn't suffer from fatty liver disease. So making sure that the diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, all that is managed, but then removing that component of obesity so that we can help the patients lose that weight. And then that can assist with some of the metabolic components so that the new liver did not have damage from the metabolic liver disease. So that was a really interesting process that we went through. And and we had a couple of papers that were written about that. But it's really interesting that there's more and more innovation coming out that are aiming to try to help with this disease, even if the patient has needed a transplant because the liver has been so damaged and now has cirrhosis, we can still do something to help them have that second lease on life. There are some additional trials that are ongoing all the time with pharmacotherapy, with the spectrum and the thought of trying to reverse fibrosis, trying to help patients with fatty liver disease. There are clinical trials that are out there. So if you do have any patients that have fatty liver disease and they are interested in wanting to pursue a clinical trial, you know, that is available and they can be one of the first to be treated with that therapy and to see if it works for them. Some patients are really moving forward to certain GLP-1s for weight loss. It's not a FDA-approved reason to treat fatty liver disease, but there are some trials that are out there that are are trying to prove that point and, and are looking into those pieces. So there's a lot to come. I think within the next years, we will have a medication out there to help with this. But for now, again, it's been for many years, the the lifestyle modifications. And I think even if we do have a medication, we're still going to focus on those lifestyle modifications to help these patients. I think the research is changing daily with this condition. I mean, there's just so many, so much research, research being done. Amanda, this has been a great discussion and I've really enjoyed working with you. Are there any closing thoughts that you would leave our listeners with? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. I've really enjoyed working on this with you too. I think this is a very timely and important topic in the kind of patients that we see. I think with all of our primary care visits, we probably see at least one of these types of patients a day, if not more. And, you know, in my world, in the in specialist world, I see them quite frequently as well. And I really like the partnership that you and I have. And I hope we mirror that for other people so that they can have that phone a friend when they have these patients in their offices and they're not quite sure what to do with them, that they have that ability to reach out and to figure out kind of what some next steps are. And I hope that with this education and stuff that we've put out there, they won't be wondering quite so much. And and we've put together some resources that that will help them with their day-to-days to help these patients. Yeah, I agree. I encourage everybody to just stay tuned because as I said, there's always going to be changes coming on this condition. And one thing I've really had to do in primary care too is use my village. We are so lucky in my clinic that we have a community health worker and a licensed counselor 
That is so helpful because I think you could have two hours with these patients in primary care and still feel like there would be other things that you want to talk to them about. So I think using the team mentality and just bringing these patients back as frequent as we need to so that we can keep them from going on to become cirrhotic. Hopefully we've left you with some things to think about. We want to thank AANP for asking us to be a part of this. It's been a really great partnership and we're very grateful for the opportunity to share this information. Thank you, Dr. Kassler and Dr. Cheney, for this interesting and informative podcast. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Join us next year in Washington, D.C. at the 2024 AANP Health Policy Conference on January 28th through 30th. At this impactful event, you'll hear from government and industry experts, gain new advocacy skills, make congressional visits, and connect with NPs from across the country, all while earning approximately 16.5 contact hours of continuing education credits. AANP members can save on registration and take advantage of special conference housing rates at the Grand Hyatt, Washington, where the conference will be held. I look forward to seeing you in D.C. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back frequently for new episodes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.